All right. Well, I only know of a couple of announcements this evening just to uh, remind you of things that are coming up on Sunday, August the on Sunday, August the seventh. There's going to be a um, event after church. We'll have dinner on the grounds, or we'll have uh, spaghetti, pasta, meatballs, um, some other things that are going to be available for. Uh, everyone, you need to bring vegetables, uh, salad, or salad, or yeah, you you need to cook. Yeah, I'm talking to you. You need to cook. <laughs> yeah, you need to bring uh, salad or dessert, and check with Ann Wright about uh, just exactly what will be needed. So this is a, in lieu of a family night, we're going to try to do some things where we can involve more people in the congregation do this after church uh, a couple of times, and we'll have a picnic also. We've got scheduled for, I believe it's Saturday, October 15th. Saturday, October the 15th. And then, as I announced last year, uh, making plans for another trip to Israel, and I've already had a number of people asking me questions. We have a tentative date, which will be the second half of June, leaving on June 17th, returning on the 29th. That could change, so just leave June open, okay? If you want to go, just sort of leave June open. And then uh, the cost will be approximately $4,000 a person. That just gives you a target budget. Things have gone up a little bit since the last time we went. Not a whole lot, but the biggest problem is that <clears throat> you can thank the federal government for and the uh, <clears throat> Federal Reserve for their fiscal policy that has caused a weaker dollar which means that things outside of the country are more expensive, and that's the primary problem. So uh, that's that's what we face right now. Uh, things can there are some variables in that number that may cause it to go down a little bit, but the one thing we can't ever put into that number is that there are airport taxes and fees that are not known until about 60 days before the trip, and those can run between two and four hundred dollars a person. And that's why I've kind of padded that number a little bit because uh, if the uh, airport taxes and fees are too bad, at least it won't it, – it, some of that's already included. So we'll just have to wait uh, wait to see. But we're planning on going some places we've not gone before. For those who are interested in going who have been before, and that's a number of people, and uh, those who haven't been before, well, it really doesn't matter. There's a 1,000 places to go and see, and we can never go to more than about 30 or 40 of them. So uh, whichever 30 or 40 they are, you'll love them the first time, and you'll have more to see when you go back the second, third, or fourth time. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we have your word, and in your word you say that you have declared the end from the beginning. You are a God who proclaims what will take place in the future, and it comes to pass 100%, not 75, 80, 90, or 99%, but 100%. And of the prophecies that we have in Scripture that have been fulfilled historically, they have been fulfilled in remarkable precision and those that have not yet been fulfilled, we know, must be fulfilled in exactly the same way. Father, we're thankful that uh, we have this as uh, evidence, as validation that confirms what we already know to be true, that this is your word revealed to us. And therefore, as we come to study it, we know that God the Holy Spirit will use it to uh, strengthen us spiritually, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our understanding of the truth, and that on that basis we will be challenged to live for you and live a life worthy of our salvation. Now, Father, we pray as we study tonight that we can focus and concentrate on what we're, what we're learning, what we're studying, 
and that you will again use this to strengthen our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Actually, I thought we would get through this a little quicker than I have, but there's so much here because again and again and again in this message, we hear this, this chorus that Peter repeats again and again, and that is that what has happened to Jesus is according to the prophets. It's according to the prophets. It's according to the prophets. Again and again, he says that, that it is, it's according to the prophets, and then he quotes from some specific passages. We have a quote in verse 23 from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and following that we'll need to spend quite a bit of attention on tonight. And then we also have a quote at the, uh, in verse 25, a specific quote from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Those are two specific quotes, but within the context of what what he says, we have uh, uh, allusions to Old Testament passages and things that are taught in the Old Testament. Verse 13, talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, uh, Jesus. Uh, these are terms that were loaded with meaning and that the Jewish audience at that time would understand that. As soon as he used certain of these words, they were like, like code words, because they had been given such significance within uh, the teaching that they had from the Old Testament. So as soon as Peter begins to talk and the way he uses these phrases and certain key vocabulary words, he is making a case, he's weaving his points together to establish this foundation that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, had over 300 predictions that were related to the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah, and that the, the, the Messiah would be known because he fit this, these patterns, he fulfilled these prophecies, uh, the fact that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be uh, betrayed, that he would uh, suffer and die, and the fact that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights, and uh, many, many others that I have mentioned and then I went over some of them last time and the time before, are evidence that what happens with Jesus wasn't just an accident. He wasn't like others who came along in the first century or even as late as the uh, first part of the second century, around 125 to 135 with the Bar Kokhba uh, re- revolt, which was uh, led and influenced by one of the foremost rabbis at that time, Rabbi Akiva, and he indicated that Bar Kokhba, which means the son of the star, that he was the Messiah. And so this led to a national uh, revolt again against Rome. And Rome uh, came in under Hadrian and just had to just violently suppress this second revolution. The first Jewish revolt was in 66 to 70. And then the this, this second revolt under Bar Kokhba led to just a, a mass destruction of the Jewish people over uh, half a million, between a half a million and three-quarters of a million of the Jews that were still living in the land in 135 were killed by the, by the Roman armies. It was just a slaughter. And so you had, this was a result of following a false Messiah. He had none of the credentials. None, none of the prophecies that were in the Old Testament were fulfilled by Bar Kokhba, and this was true of numerous others that had come, come along during the last, what we would refer to as the first century B.C. and the early part of the first century A.D. Now, last time I mentioned that uh, there were a lot of these other, um, these other Messiah figures that came along, false messiahs that made these various claims, and it was because the, the there was this sense, uh, much like we have today, there was this sense that there was something happening. There was a, uh, it, it ran through not just Jewish culture, but Roman culture, Greek culture, Parthian culture, other cultures had this sense that, that something was going to happen. And they were all looking towards some sort of change that was going to take place in the, the especially the Jewish expectation of Messiah what was uh, very rich and was was fed a lot by different activities so that they were looking for something 
And then when we look at our own age today, there's also people who have this expectation that something's going to change. There's going to be some sort of uh, apocalyptic destruction. Uh, even if you're a secular atheist, greeny environmentalist, uh, there's this apocalyptic expectation. Uh, and this has been going on. It's not new with the modern in, modern phase of the nature worship environmental movement. But it goes back into the into the 19th century. You find people all the way back to Malthus, who was the uh, man who was uh, predicted that the Earth's population would grow so quickly that uh, massive famines would come and the human race would be in severe straits by the uh, uh, late 19th century or early 20th century. None of this is, has faced. It seems like the you know, people talk about dispensationalists who look forward to the coming of Jesus at the rapture and then seven years of tribulation and then Jesus returns that, oh, you're so pessimistic. We don't even touch it when you, you go read Al Gore. <laughs> go read these environmentalists. They just, it, it's like they want to wallow in the destruction of the human race and the universe as we know it. And if it doesn't happen, they're depressed. They're discouraged. They just think, oh, they just revel in, in, in the negativity. They're just so pessimistic about the future and that no matter what happens, we have a cold year. Oh, it's global warming and we're all going to burn up eventually. If it's a hot year, it's global warming. That's even more so. Then the next year it's cold and colder than normal. It's still global warming. Whatever it is, it's global warming and it's, and we're all going to be destroyed and we have to change everything. I mean, they're just such pessimists, but there's this expectation that, that there's just going to be this radical change that's going to come. And, and then there's all this talk of this coming up, coming year on the Mayan calendar that, uh, which nobody can read. And, and I, I don't know why they even come up with 2012. It's just uh, confused data from what I've read on it. There are different interpretations of how they count this down, but, uh, allegedly next year there's a, is a, is a huge apocalyptic year, so there are Christians who've taken that to be validation. Jesus will come back next year too. Mayan calendar supports the Bible, don't you know? So, if we just think about some of the crazy uh, messianic rapture predictions that we see in our own time, and multiply that about tenfold back into the first century, you get an idea of, of the fervor that was going on there. They, they expected the Messiah, and then Jesus came on the scene, and again and again and again, he validates these Old Testament prophecies. They come true, and it just wasn't possible. It could not be manufactured. They weren't self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, they were things that were completely outside of any one person's control. Now, one person might come along and manufacture one, two, three, ten, maybe different things, uh, but the dozens and dozens, up to 300, that were fulfilled in Jesus at the first advent, it's impossible for anybody to engineer that. It has to be an act of God. And so Peter and others in the New Testament constantly go back to these Old Testament prophecies. And, of course, there's a, an attempt to discredit them. There was a, an attempt to discredit them at the time. Remember when um, when Jesus cast out the demon, the Pharisees said, well, you just did that by Satan. That's, you're not any Messiah. You're just using Satan's power to cast out the demon. And that was when Jesus announced judgment upon that generation because they were ascribing to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I mean, they were ascribing to the devil the works of the Holy Spirit, and that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a one-time event that was related to that generation in history. It's not the unforgivable sin. It had to do with the fact that at that point they had the, the uh, Jewish leadership had reached a point of no return as it were, in their uh, rejection of his messianic claims. And now he's basically saying that that this is, this is it. You've had enough opportunities. You've finally completely rejected my offer of the kingdom, and now judgment will come to this generation, and that would be it. So that's part of the background. In Acts chapter 3, there's a, in Acts chapter 2 as well, there's an, another extended 
offer from God of the kingdom, which we have seen. Then, and the statement in both chapters is to the Jewish people as a whole and to the individuals that if the kingdom is going to come, there must be certain conditions that are met by not just Jewish people individually, but collectively as a whole. Because until the nation turns back to God, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, until the nation turns back to God, God is not going to re- return them from all the nations to which he has scattered them. And so this, the scriptures make it clear that before Jesus will return, there will be a change in the Jewish people toward his claims to be a Messiah. Now, that seems to bother a certain number of Jewish people. In fact, there's uh, one, one of the canards that's out there. There's another one of those big words. I'm starting to get really self-conscious about using vocabulary words, so I have to define them for you. And a canard just means a, an insult, a pejorative. Oh, there's another word. A, an insult that is made up. It, it's, it's a slander that the only reason that evangelicals support Israel is because they want all of the Jews to return to Israel so that uh, Jesus can then come back and then they'll all get killed at the Battle of Armageddon. That's how they twist it around. See, you never heard that. I never heard that. I've only heard it from a few Jewish people who said, well, we've heard this. See, the only people who say this are people who try to disrupt the alliance between evangelicals and Israel because they understand politically that it is the the evangelical evangelicals in America that are conservative, that are Bible believers, that are lovers of Israel. That is a word that that is philo-Semitic as opposed to anti-Semitic, and that philo-Semitism is rooted in the American Christian culture going back to the Puritans. And that because of that, the United States is distinct from Europe with its heritage in replacement theology that the church replaced Israel. This is why the United States has had this uh, pro-Israel, philo-Semitic, Zionist orientation for the last uh, 300 to 400 years. And so there is this, and it's not motivated because uh, Christians are just trying to get all the Jews back to the land or anything like this. God is going to come, Christ is going to come when Christ is going to come. And the best answer I've read to this, because every now and then you run into somebody, and they may be Jewish or they may not be Jewish, everybody who just sort of gets their, uh, their undergarments in a knot over uh, Christianity and the fact that we believe that Jesus is the only way, and then they get real hostile. And one of the uh, Jewish writers I, I read had a great comeback. It was just just nice, lighthearted, diffused attention, everything, because somebody gets all in your face about the fact, well, you're Christians, you're so judgmental. Uh, you just want to say Jesus is the only way, and if we don't believe that, we're all just going to go to hell. I said, well, why are you so upset about it if you don't think it's true? I mean, if you're right and it's not true, why are you so upset? But if it is true, then you're going to have a lot of explaining to do to Jesus. So that's a nice little way to get people to think about it. But it's it's interesting. People get so upset about it. You might think that that had something to do with what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, that everybody knows that God exists. And there's enough evidence of it so that they are aware of it and they are aware of their own unrighteousness before God that when you come along and say, make the Christian claim of exclusivity, which actually isn't unique to Christian. You go back into the Old Testament. You know, there was only one way on the ark. There was only one way to uh, survive the uh, tenth plague. There was only one way to get across the Red Sea. There was only only um, uh, one way to have victory at Jericho. It was always God's way. He defined the one and only way again and again and again all the way through the Old Testament. But you tell people there's only one way, and they just go ballistic. And it's because you, you, you're you you're threatening to let that little genie out of the bottle, and the genie meaning their God consciousness and awareness that there's accountability. So we have to be uh, 
<clears throat> calm and relaxed in, in terms of our witness, but recognize that, that there are objective claims that go back thousands of years in terms of these prophecies. And there aren't just prophecies. There's also patterns and types and foreshadowings that we see in the Old Testament on top of that that all indicate the same thing. And the fulfillment, uh, it comes first in Christ at his first coming with the cross and the second coming at with the crown. That first the Messiah comes to suffer as it is taught many times in the Old Testament. And this is what uh, Peter's focusing on in this sermon. And then uh, Christ will return to reign at the second coming. Now, last time we've kind of wrapped up, closed up, just to sort of bring us back together where we've concluded. In the second part of his, in the second part of his challenge, which is really 19, 20, 21, Peter gives us command starting in 19, repent therefore and be converted straight out of Deuteronomy 32. You, the Jewish people need to turn before the Messiah will come back and establish the kingdom. He just sets that up. That's the precondition. We don't know when it will happen. Nobody can make it happen, force it to happen, but it will happen. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That has to happen so that with the result that the times of refreshing will come. And I pointed out in Isaiah uh, chapter 28, verses uh, 12 and following, that that sense of refreshing is used to describe the coming of the kingdom. So turn, repent, change your mind, and turn, as I translated it last time, so that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing, that is, so that the kingdom may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who is preached to you before. Then verse 21, speaking of Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of times of the restoration of all things. So we see a pattern here that is uh, a little more developed than what we saw in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus had to be glorified, taken to heaven, be, uh, and received there until, so there's a time period, until the times of the restoration of all things. Now, the word that is used here for restoration is the word apocatastasis, and it is the, <clears throat> uh, has a similar form of the word, the verb form, apo, apocatistemi, was used in Acts 1 6 when the uh, uh, disciples asked Jesus just before he ascended to heaven, will you at this time, restore, there's that word, apocathistomy, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But here, what Peter is showing by using that same word is that before this restoration can take place, that there are certain things that have to happen. The Jewish people will turn, uh, turn to God and all the things which God spoke by the prophets must take place. I also pointed out Acts 15, verses 16 through 17, at the Jerusalem Council, where uh, in the explanation of the events <clears throat> in Acts 15, 16, speaking of uh, quotes from Jesus, after this, I w this is a prophecy from Amos 9, 11. After this, that's what's different about the quote in, in um, Acts 15, 16, Amos 9, 11 simply says, on that day, speaking of the Lord, the day of the Lord at the uh, end of days, the tribulation period. But here, Peter says, or, or James says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, which is the house of David ruling over Israel. I will rebuild its ruins. I will, I will set it up. See, God does this. It's not up to us. We can't do anything to manipulate this, to make it happen any quicker or slow it down. The time is set. Only God knows when that will be. So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, so that there is in this time frame, this interlude between Jesus' ascension and his return, a time when the gospel is going to the Gentiles. That's what Pete, why Peter will quote Genesis 12.3 and verse uh, 25, of, of this chapter that in when God said to Abraham, by your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
So we looked at those passages last time, and I spoke of the fact that that um, also along with this we see that there is this this awaiting, this this expectation of the cre- of the creation, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God in Romans eight nineteen because the creation is subject to futility. Doesn't matter that that you have to avoid two extremes here. Number one. That doesn't mean that just because the creation's under a curse that we can trash it irresponsibly. On the other hand, it, it means that the cosmic system gets trashed and we can't avoid it. We have to avoid being irresponsible in the use of nature, but we live in, in a fallen world and the creation is under judgment from God. But there will become a time when even the creation itself will be refreshed. And this is what uh, Paul refers to in Romans 8.22. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, uh, until the time when the adoption at the end of verse 23, the redemption of our body, the redemption of the earth. Isaiah 28.12 spoke of this as the time of refreshing. So it's all millennial. It all is talking about when the Messiah will come. Now, this is important because where, where Peter goes with this now, up to this point, he has reiterated Old, Old Testament or Hebrew phrases and terms, but now he's going to quote from two passages. And the first passage will be from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And he quotes this in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now this is a really interesting passage for for Peter to quote, going back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. So turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let's see what Moses wrote. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Hebrew Scriptures. The first section, the foundation section of the Hebrew Scriptures, referred to as the Torah or the law, and the word Torah also means uh, instruction or teaching. And the fifth book, Deuteronomy, the name actually means the, uh, uh, Deuteronomos. Namas means law. Deuteronomy means second time. And it was thought at one time to be a second giving of the law. It's sort of a restatement of the law by Moses in some ways. It's not a second giving of the law, but it is a restatement of the Mosaic law as a sermon. This was a sermon that uh, that Moses gave to the nation before he went up into the mountain to die. This is his last word and testimony, his final challenge to the nation before the, this conquest generation would then go into the into the land. So he reminds them of the key elements of the of the law, and he reminds them of things that need to be done when they come into the land and are established as a nation. And one of the things that he points out in this section has to do with the qualifications on leaders. And this sets apart Israel's sense of leadership and authority in the state from anything else in the ancient world. Anything similar that you saw in the ancient world was derivative or derived or came from Scripture. Not the other way around. So what you get in liberal theology is that people came up with all these ideas and then the, the, the inventiveness of the Jewish people put it all together into something new. No, no, it's the other way around. God revealed this to, to the Jewish people. It was written down and, and even before Noah, there was some sort of Adamic canon, some sort of Noahic canon, as you would, Noahic scripture, some sort of uh, whether it was just verbal or nonverbal, we don't know. But there's clear, uh, clearly indication that there was a sense of a record of, of uh, a recording of revelation 
before Noah. And you get these phrase over and over again in, in Genesis. This is the generation of, this is what happened to it. There's this indication that these sections were written by these Old Testament uh, heroes like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They And they oversaw the transmission of that information. And that then later became the basis for what Moses used as reference material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record the Pentateuch. But there was some sort of pre-Moses revelation, pre-Noah information. And what happens in the pagan cultures, as we've said in Romans, is there's a deterioration from the truth. It was not an evolutionary process up to the truth or up to a higher form of religion, such as monotheism. But it started as a righteous monotheism, a plural monotheism, and then because of sin, it degraded into all these other religions. So it's a what came first, the chicken or the egg. Evolution says, well, sort of the egg came first because it had something different than the mama. It had a new, some sort of new gene or new something or other. As you, as you see this development, but the Bible says what came first was the chicken, and, every, and, and the chicken then reproduced according to its kind. And so there were set, there were set patterns, and there was, uh, there was change and development within those patterns, but there were those set patterns. So we start with the scripture. And we see here a view of government that is different from everybody else. And so the immediate context of the passage we're looking at in Deuteronomy 18.15 are the regulations related to the leadership in the theocracy, the Jewish theocracy. And the regulations related to kings are spelled out starting in chapter 17, verse 14, down to the end of the chapter. And it was required of the king that he was to handwrite a copy of the law for himself, and he would be uh, this would be witnessed by the priests and the Levites. He didn't couldn't just say, "Yeah, I'm doing that in my morning devotional," and he was you know doing something else. But he had to handwrite out a copy of the law so that he had no excuse for knowing every detail in the Torah. And then in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 18 starts another section where we have regulations about the priests and the Levites. And this takes us down to uh, verse 9. And in verse 9, there is a warning to avoid divination. And by divination, I mean an unauthorized approach to getting insight into reality apart from the specific authorized revelation of God. And so the the Levites and the leadership are prohibited from getting information from unauthorized sources and pointing out that these sources here are demonic, ultimately. And there's a warning here. And so we're told in verse 9, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. No human or infant sacrifice. Of course, this was violated later by Jephthah when he offered his daughter as a burnt offering. Uh, They were prohibited from practicing witchcraft, or being a soothsayer. These were just various forms of, of fortune-telling that was unauthorized, seeking some sort of insight. Today we would use tarot cards. You'd call a 1-900 number off some commercial on TV, I guess, or you would uh, look at the astrology column, or you would go down to some, uh, some person who would conduct a seance. These were all uh, prohibited and unauthorized because you're getting information that is not under the rigid control of of uh, of the law, and the law is very rigid in its in governing truth. <clears throat> How do you know truth? Because it comes from God, and it is uh, the, every prophecy comes true, not just most prophecy, not just some spectacular prophecies, but everyone everyone comes true. 
Every now and then I, somebody asks me if I know anything about Nostradamus and these prophecies of Nostradamus. If you've ever read Nostradamus, you can read anything into him you want. Now, some people say you can do that with the Bible, but that's because they've never read the Bible or they're just trying to distort the Bible. But you read Nostradamus, and there's no specificity there, so you can, you can make him make some of those things apply to just about any event uh, in history. But you don't go there. Christians shouldn't read that because, you know, people say, well, there's some truth there. Well, there's some truth in the Book of Mormon. There's some truth in probably, uh, uh, you know, the Satanic Bible. There's probably a little truth in uh, in the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran, but I, you shouldn't go there to find it because it's got more error than truth, and you just don't need to confuse yourself with all that, so stick with the truth. So there's a prohibition against seeking unauthorized uh Revelation from God. Conclusion, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. So part of the reason that the Canaanites were being eliminated from the land is because of their rebellion against God in seeking to uh, rule their life on the basis of satanic and demonic revelation. In contrast to this, we come down to our passage in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. So the me is Moses. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. So that means this prophet is also going to be Jewish. He will raise up a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So that's the command, that when this prophet shows up, you listen to him. Now, that's why we're going to get qualifications on how to determine and validate such prophet. You, him you shall hear, Moses said, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of this, the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The point in verse 16 is they had heard God audibly. If they had had their little MP3 recorder there, they could have recorded the voice of God. It was objective. It was not something they heard internally. It wasn't just some sort of group hallucination. And they didn't like to hear God's voice. Once again, it's that truth suppression thing. We don't like to be reminded that God is speaking to us. And, and so the Lord is going to send them a prophet. This has a mediatorial, uh, this is a mediatorial role. Now what's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. And when God spoke to Moses, I mean when God spoke to the Israelites from Mount Sinai, which the alternate name is Mount Horeb, the people said, no, no, we can't listen to God. Speak to Moses and then he'll speak to us. Moses had a mediatorial role. He served as the meter. God spoke and gave direct revelation to Moses. Then Moses turned around and gave it to the people so the people didn't have to listen directly to God. So that was, uh, that was part of his, his role. And so what verse 16 is simply saying is that because you said you didn't want to hear the voice directly from God, God gave you a prophet. Moses is the archetypical prophet. He is the pattern. But the prophet that will, that he's speaking of here is going to be like him but will be even even greater. Now, this verse is clearly understood in the Old Testament and in the early church. And remember, the vast majority of the people in the early church up until about 150. So from the founding and the beginning of Christianity with Jesus between 30 and 33 to about approximately 150, a, a huge percentage of the Christian church were Jewish. So you're not going to pull a whole lot of, uh, of, of, <clears throat> of stunts where you can fool people when you've got a large number of Jews who understand the Old Testament and the Torah, and some of whom, especially in the early parts of the first century, were eyewitnesses to the events in Jerusalem. You're not going to be able to commit a, a, a fraud or a hoax. So they, up till in the early church there in the early part of the second century, it was clearly understood that this was a prophecy related to the Messiah. Now, the reason I say that, and even in Judaism, 
can go back, and I've got some more details on some of this in the series I did on the Messiah back around Christmas last year. But if you look at at the um, uh, look, look historically, that in the the Talmud and the Mishnah and the and other Jewish writings up until about 700 to 900 or thousand, the predominant view among the Jewish writings was that this was a prediction of the Messiah. Then you had a, a couple of rabbis that came along around uh, 1,000 who came up with some alternate interpretations, and they influenced not only uh, the Jewish community and the rabbis in the Jewish community, but also they influenced uh, some Protestant reformers like John Calvin because some of these Protestant reformers were going to Jewish writings to get insights into the Old Testament, and they would read Rashi and some of these others, and they would pick up on these ideas and say, oh, this really isn't Messianic. And we still fight that today. In fact, there's a a number of people who, uh, even in evangelicalism today, who have a trend towards rejecting the idea that there's any Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, which is just just absurd. You just wonder... Uh, where, where some of these people came from. So what happens here is we need to look at this a little bit because if you just study the text a little bit, it becomes very clear from the details of the language that this is a messianic prophecy. Not only do we have that to give us confirmation that this was intended by God and by Moses to be a, a messianic prophecy, but it's understood that way in the New Testament. Peter interprets this and understands this to be a prophecy of the Messiah in Acts chapter 3. And then Stephen does the same thing in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. So Stephen reiterates this. So you have both Peter and Stephen quoting from Deuteronomy 18.15 that this is a messianic uh, prophecy. So we go back to look at Deuteronomy 18.15, and let's just look at a couple of things, a couple of observations about this. First of all, the language makes it clear that it is describing an individual. Your God will raise up for you a prophet. Now, I want you to note that here it says a prophet. When we get a little further down in the text, in verse 20, we'll read, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name. There's a difference between a prophet without the definite article and the prophet with the definite article in verse 20. Verse 20 is talking about a collective group of all the prophets whenever uh, but the prophet who speaks to you are, it's talking about a group. Here it's talking about a specific individual, individual prophet. Now what you discover, if you read very much, and the reason I point this out, I know there are folks who listen to me and they'll go and listen, read the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is generally pretty good. It's wrong on this in Deuteronomy 18.15. Kyle and Delich, I was checking Kyle and Delich today. Uh, Delich, interestingly enough, I don't know if you're familiar with that, sometimes it's just referred to as K&D, written in the late 19th century and is considered a classic commentary on the Old Testament, large volume set. And um, uh, Delich was of Jewish background. Kyle was not. Uh, Delich believed that this was a messianic prophecy. Kyle did not. Kyle wrote the commentary on Deuteronomy. So I'm reading through it today. I went, huh? That surprises me because Kyle did not take it as a messianic prophecy, but yet in a separate work on messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, Delich clearly uh, defends this as a messianic prophecy. So you'll find, you'll read something somewhere. You'll hear some pastor. You'll look down in your notes in your study Bible. And you will see that somebody will say, well, this probably wasn't a messianic prophecy. So just beware. And so I'm going to just introduce you to that. There's basically four views. The first says that this refers a single future prophet, but it's not the Messiah. This is a standard Jewish interpretation. And usually it's identified as Jeremiah or Joshua. 
And that is a fulfillment of this, this prophecy. The problem with that is that Moses was a prophet of deliverance, but Jeremiah was a prophet of doom. They have completely different kinds of ministry. A problem with Joshua, as we'll see when I, I'll have the verse up on the screen later, Joshua was not like Moses, either in terms of being a mediator between God and the people or in the way he received direct communication with God. Jeremiah didn't either. Remember, and we'll look at the passage, God said to Moses, I speak to you face to face, not like anybody else. There, there's a distinct way in which God revealed himself to Moses that is not true of any other prophet, Hebrew prophet in the ancient world, and cannot be, it wasn't true of Joshua, which Deuteronomy 34, 9 and 10 specifically states, and it wasn't true of Jeremiah. So that just doesn't fit the scriptural qualifications. Second view that you, that you might run into is the idea that this passage envisions just a general statement about prophets, that it, both passages, both verse 15 and verse 20, you're talking about a collective non-Messianic, uh, group of prophets. Uh, the the argument from that is that the context of Deuteronomy 16 to 18 describes the offices of kings. It uses the plural for melech, for kings, and for priests in general. So this is just talking about prop, the qualifications for prophets in general. The problem with that is that the broader context does uh, does fit leadership, but the ultimate leader that's envisioned in Israel is the Messiah. And it is the Messiah who is over the prophets, the priests, and the kings. So, so that view doesn't go far enough in understanding the context. Second thing that you might hear is that the immediate context of Deuteronomy 18 in verses 9 through 14, which prohibits uh, demonism, divination, things of that nature, that this is true because there's a contrast between the ultimate authority in Israel which will be the Messiah, the prophet who speaks for God, and the ultimate source of authority in the pagan nations, which are their false gods, their idols, the divination, things of that nature. Uh, third, you might hear that uh, the, this discussion in verse 20, when it starts to talk about the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that that uses a collective noun. It's, whenever, it's the idea of uh, the way it's structured is, but the prophet who presumes to speak in my name, and, and that we understand that it's using a gnomic expression that whenever any prophet, it's it's that idea. When, but when the prophet, or uh, but the prophet who speaks in my name, is just talking about a classification of prophets, and that's indicated by the use of the uh, of the uh, article there. Also in verse twenty in the Hebrew, it's not translatable real well. But the opening uh, conjunction is a Hebrew word, ak, which are just translated ak. And it's not a strong contrast. It's a soft contrast, and it doesn't necessarily indicate a full contrast. So that if you're contrasting apples and oranges, you would use a stronger contrastive word. But if you're, if you're contrasting golden delicious and red delicious, you would use ak because you're contrasting something but not everything, okay? So that's where the contrast is here, uh, how it's stated uh, grammatically. The word for prophet, uh, navi, the plural is navaim, the word for prophet in verses 15 through 19 does not have uh, the definite article, which indicates that it is speaking about a singular prophet in this case. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, not the prophet, but a prophet. It is in, indicates the lack of the definite article, indicates something that is, uh, that is specific, whereas the use of the definite article and the change in, by adding the definite article by the time you get to verse 20 indicates that at verse 20 you're talking about something different than what you were talking about in verses 15 uh, through 19. Then there's another view that is called just a collective messianic view. That's, this is where a lot of evangelicals end up. They try to make 
oh, it means everything to everybody. It just it, it can mean a, it can mean the Messiah. By the New Testament, it meant the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it it it, it meant prophets also. You know, they just they, they come up with this idea of double fulfillment and um, double application, which I pointed out before in terms of hermeneutics is just nonsensical. A prophecy is fulfilled once. It's not fulfilled multiple times. There's only one single fulfillment. And if you have any questions on that, go back and listen to the lectures from the Chafer Seminary or the Chafer Pastors Conference two or three years ago when Dr. Robert Thomas spoke on hermeneutics, and he makes uh, deals with all the intricacies of that. And the fourth view is the view that we would suspect, the direct messianic view, that emphasizes the fact that because we have the singular use of Navi for prophet in verse 15 without the article, that it is speaking not in a collective sense, but in an individual sense, that when it's talking in a collective sense, it either adds the article or like in the previous chapter when it talks about kings, it uses the plural. We hear the second argument is that the prophet here is compared to an individual, not to a group. It's a, pro- a prophet like me. Normal use of language indicates that since Moses is one, the prophet, a prophet that is like him is also one, not a group. So it would refer to a single individual. In, the, in terms of looking at Moses' ministry, he combined legislative, executive, priestly, and mediatorial authority in one person. He gave the law. He was the, uh, served as a, he's of the tribe of, of Levi, just as Aaron is, and he served in priestly ways at times. He had, he mediated between God and man. So all of this was true of Moses. So a prophet like me, when Moses says that, this would have to be a prophet that would combine all of those realms of authority. And nobody else does in the Old Testament. And then last, the, because the New Testament confirms that Deuteronomy 18 is messianic by the way it is used, that makes it, makes it pretty clear. Now, what is a prophet? What does a prophet do? The core verse for understanding the role of a prophet really comes from Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When God is speaking to Moses and Moses is trying to avoid having to talk, God, just don't, don't, don't put that on me. I, I stutter. I don't know whether he stuttered or not or he just made it up trying to come up with an excuse. God said to him in verse 1 of chapter 7, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So God builds an analogy. As God, God speaks to the Israelites as their ultimate authority. Aaron, I mean, Moses is going to function in that analogy to Pharaoh. He is going to be the ultimate authority announcing judgment on Pharaoh. And as a prophet was a spokesperson for God, so Aaron would be the spokesperson for Moses. So that tells us the core role of a prophet is to be the spokesperson for God. A, something I learned years ago before I ever went to seminary. A prophet represents man, God to man, and a priest represents man to God. A prophet represents God to man, and a priest represents man to God. And and he speaks God's words to man. Exodus 7.2, you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. That's the role of a prophet. Now, when we get into, back to Deuteronomy verse or chapter 18, the Lord, through Moses, says, the Lord will raise up from among you a prophet like me. And he goes on to uh, explain this a little bit. In verse 17, the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. That is relating to the historical event at, at uh, Horeb. And then in verse 18, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Now, this puts an ethical obligation on the people to be obedient to the words of this prophet like Moses. It's not an option. 
If you're disobedient, there will be judgment. I am going to hold you accountable to that, God said. This is why Moses concluded the uh, what he said in verse 15, him you shall hear. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. Now, what was it that made Moses distinct? In Numbers chapter 12, we see exactly what made Moses distinct. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 and following, uh, 6 through 8, we read, God speaking to Moses, now, or to the people, actually. Now, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. These are other means of divine revelation, visions, dreams. He says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now the context here is in Deuteronomy, I mean in Numbers chapter 11 verses 16 through 30, God had uh, authorized Moses to have a uh, delegated uh, leadership group called the elders. There were 70 of them. And God confirmed that by distributing the Holy Spirit to those 70 elders. And he also allowed them to prophesy but not like Moses did, and, and that's stated in 11.25, Numbers 11.25. In Numbers 12.1 through 5, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' older brother and sister, always get a case of jealousy, and so they started speaking against Moses, that he's just trying to uh, increase his power base. And so the context of, of Numbers 12, 6 through 8 is God is defending Moses. And his point is that even though there are other prophets, Moses is unique among all prophets because of the way of his relationship to me as a mediatorial prophet because I speak with him face to face. No other prophet in the Old Testament fit that. Now, how can I say that? Well, it's clear from Scripture and don't tell me I left this verse out. I did. That's good. You need to turn there anyway. Turn your Bibles to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, Deuteronomy 34 is the last chapter in Deuteronomy. And I remember years and years and years ago when I was in high school hearing a series on the canon that that. You know, Moses wrote all of the Pentateuch, except he probably didn't write the last chapter because he had died by then. It's very hard. Unless he was writing this prophetically, this was written after him. And usually you'll find people suggest that this was written by Joshua. I don't think so, and I'll explain that uh, as I go into this, that it was probably written many, many years after the death of Moses. In Deuteronomy 34.1, we read, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. So he's still outside the land across the River Jordan. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Now, I've, I've never seen that. I've been up there once. In the summer, it's real hard to see because it's, uh, remember that? It's really, uh, there's just so much haze in the air. You're lucky if you can see the Jordan down below, much less Jerusalem. Or, but it's only about 40 miles from there over to the Mediterranean. So he could see all the land, beautiful, clear day, which is why this was in the winter. No, no haze. It's not pollution. It's just heat from, haze from heat. So it was probably in the winter, crystal clear day. Cold front had probably just gone through and he can see from the far north all the way from, uh, from Dan to Beersheba. And God shows him all of the land. And then Moses dies. Verse five, Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. That's God buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Hmm. Right? Now there's, if you go there and you go to, um, you go to Petra and you go all the way to the top of Petra up to where they have the, what they call the monastery and then you follow all the little signs that say walk this way, great view, over, scenic overlook. 
And I felt like a fool. Okay, I'll, I'll walk out there. Another 100 yards, I think I can do it. Got out there, and then way off in the distance, 200 yards away, another sign, scenic overlook this way. So I walked out. Did that about five times. I thought, I better get to the end of this. Finally, I did, and just magnificent overlook. And off to the to the south was another rugged peak. How anybody could get up there? And there's something on top of this other peak. And it is a it is a marker that's based on that goes back into antiquity for the grave of Aaron. So they knew the the, the Jews knew where they were buried. But by the time this last chapter is written, nobody knows where Moses is buried. Nobody knows this. The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plain. Then we read in verse 9, Now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, this is the writer of chapter 34. This isn't Moses. Since then... There has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. So it wasn't Joshua. He's clearly saying it's not, he just gave great praise to Joshua in verses 9 and 10, in verse 9, but now in verse 10 he says, but there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. Now, verse one of chapter 33, if you just hold back a page, says, Now this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Again, verse, chapter 33 doesn't appear to have been written by Moses, but by whoever brought the final copy together. He's called the man of God. That phrase never appears in the Pentateuch. He, Moses is always uh, referred to as the servant of the Lord. The Lord's servant, never referred to as the man of God. And, and that phrase doesn't appear anywhere else in the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy, as I pointed out, in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6, it can be argued and has been argued that it's not that nobody knew where he was buried, but by the time Deuteronomy is, is finalized, nobody, nobody from that generation was still alive. Nobody knew where he had gone. Nobody knew where the grave could possibly be. All of that information had been lost. It, and that it would ex- also exclude Joshua from being the writer of this last, uh, this last, this last chapter. And so chapter, I mean, verse 10 of chapter 34 is like a statement made either right before the exile or maybe in a final form of, of the Pentateuch by, uh, maybe it was finalized by Ezra after the return. And there is this final statement. Uh, maybe it was written by somebody right at the close of the Old Testament canon who comes back and writes in light of Deuteronomy 18.15, this verse that says, basically, there has never arisen in Israel. It's very strong in the Hebrew. It's not just since then, like the New King James has it, that loses some of it. It's there never arose in Israel a prophet like Moses. Here's this prophecy. Moses says, a prophet will come like me. And yet probably a thousand years later, at the close of the canon, or maybe 800 if you want to say it's before the exile, and this last chapter, these last verses are, are added, the prophet overseeing this writes, there never arose in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. It never happened. No one like Moses ever showed up, no prophet. It's not until Jesus shows up that you have a prophet that is like Moses. And he is a prophet that combines in his person those same elements that we find that Moses had, that he, this, this uh, legislative, mediatorial, royal, uh, leadership that is unique and distinct uh, to to uh, Moses, so that Jesus is the one then who fulfills this prophecy, and it is from this that Peter will conclude when he comes to the end of Acts three twenty six. To you first, God, having raised up the servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning 
away every one of you from your iniquities. Before Jesus can come and give you the kingdom, this has to happen. Okay, next time I'll wrap it up with uh, Genesis 12, 13, which is not quite as an extensive a quote, and then that will allow us probably to get on into the fourth chapter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, be reminded that there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus that he just could not have been an aberration, just not an accident. He just didn't show up and have all these different prophecies fulfilled in one person. It is mathematically impossible that this was just chance. He is your servant sent from heaven to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and to redeem his people. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things now in Christ's name. Amen.